whole world of fashion, it shouldn't just be pictures from runway shows. It should be to show the way you think about things and the way you look at things. It should be a bit more lateral and a bit more unusual. What's been the impact of the pandemic? All the stuff that has happened in the world that fashion reflects. Have you ever felt frightened or intimidated at any point? Never, because I've got a beautiful lady at home and we've never gone like a rocket as a company. We've always been within our means. We've never overdone it. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. There are very few fashion businesses, let alone an independent fashion business, that makes it to the 50-year mark in fashion. But Paul Smith is one of the rare designers to have done so. He opened his first shop in Nottingham 50 years ago and now has more than 200 stores worldwide. In the latest episode of the BOF podcast, Paul Smith speaks with BOF's editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, about the last five decades in fashion, his latest book, and how the current moment is prompting a return to craft. Here's Paul Smith, Inside Fashion. Hello, good afternoon, welcome to BOF Live. Today our guest is Sir Paul Smith, who is incredibly, to me, celebrating his 50th year in business, which is just stunning. And I mean, that that achievement in this industry is obviously is obviously massive. And I'm looking at Paul sitting there and I'm thinking that does look like 50 years piled up behind him. Yeah. It's only 20 years. <laughs> it's only 20 years, Tim. But um, I've got a, a big warehouse in the north of England that's got the other 30 years in it, of which there are many lovely clothes from, from the past. I mean, some of those early collections, sadly, I I couldn't afford to keep, you know, I sell the last sample just to uh, get some uh, get some income. But I've got quite a lot of the old clothes, but not all the way back, you know. And that archive, that kind of archive, I mean, there really aren't very many designers who could lay claim to something like that. What's your intention for it? I mean, at the moment, we, we've just employed about a year ago, somebody called an archivist. And uh, she went to the archive and she said, this is not an archive. This is a room with lots of stuff. Oh, and God. Um, immediately got told off because it's not just clothes. There's, you know, face magazines for, from the beginning, uh, arena, domus magazines, furniture, a lot of the the lovely things that are in the uh, in the warehouse with the, the archive hopefully can be a contributor to the Paul Smith's foundation, which is what we're launching today. And, you know, there's a lot of information about the, a lot of the old fashion shows, press articles, graphic design. So eventually when we completely understand what the foundation will be exactly about at the moment, it's just information for young people, but hopefully there'll be some of the archive will be used in, in a good way. Do you, but do you imagine it being digitized? I mean, obviously when, when people are talking about legacy for the future, you know, it, it needs to be easily accessed now. And that, that means digitalizing archives. A lot of the, uh, so almost all the fashion shows are digitalized now, available online anyway. 
and then slowly some of the press and some of the old look books and things, which actually, are, are, uh, you know, it's not really to do with the legacy. It's just to do with documentation of interesting stuff, really. And, and hopefully people, you know, might be interested in them, hopefully. Well, it's a time capsule, 50 years of fashion, 50 years of, I mean, you have dressed the, the good and the great. You've been part of the, the renaissance of British fashion and the, you know, you've seen it rise and fall and rise and fall. It was a very interesting time to start, you know, it's 1970, a very exciting time to start because we just come out of the 60s, which, you know, was so full of energy and new ideas. I think, you know, based on the horror of war, which had, you know, probably we were the second or third generation after the depression of war. And I think, you know, as you know, with the Stones, the the Beatles and what was happening in San Francisco, Hyatt and Ashbury, the hippies, the amazing graphic designers like El Alan Aldrich, who did the Beatles, work with the Beatles and the Elton John. So it was, a, it was a time when you sort of could just, you almost sort of were looking around to see, can I get away with this, you know, but you could. Uh, and people like Vivian and, you know, and then eventually later on the punks and the, uh, and the new romantics and self-expression through how you looked, what you did, but not political and not violent. It was very interesting that, that now a lot of expression of the youth is, is, is are those two things, you know, political or violent. And, and it was just, um, we just looked silly <laughs> a lot of the time and uh, it didn't really matter, you know, velvet trousers, velvet, um, you know, the, you know, the famous story about me making Jimmy Page's velvet trousers, you know, when I was 18 years of age, the main guy from Led Zeppelin. So it, it please was, uh, tell us how small his waist was, because I, <laughs> my throat still closes when you tell me that it was what, 20, 24 inch. Oh, my waist. God. And the bottoms of the trousers were 28 inch. <laughs> so it was like, whoop. Every time right. I see Jimmy Page, I try to imagine him with a 24 inch waist. I mean, that makes He's not much bigger now, to be honest. He, we still, you know, we're still in contact. And he's not much bigger now. He's still oh. pretty, you know, pretty skinny guy. But uh, 24 is very, very small. We, we, you know, we have a bespoke, bespoke service, you know, at our shop. And we make a, a, a lot of, of clothes for, for sports people. Most of their thighs are bigger than <laughs> Jimmy's waist. You know? yeah. I mean, a man who could make Kate Moss look like divine, that's pretty extraordinary. <laughs> but now you mentioned cycling before, we got, before you froze there. And of course, your story begins with a bike crash, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. From 11 till 18, my dream was to be a professional, you know, racing cyclist, which sadly I would never have achieved because I wasn't that good. But that was my dream. You can probably see some bikes in the in the back here. So I'm very, oh, yes, I see them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very um, connected still to the world of, of cycling and that big pile of jerseys are all cycle jerseys from, you know, pretty, pretty special bike riders around the world. But I uh, had a crash at 18 and I ended up in hospital for three months and uh, that as they say was the sort of the start of my interest in something called creativity and design completely by chance. Two of the other patients in the hospital came out at the same time as me and one of them said let's let's keep in touch 
and we did, and they chose a pub in my hometown of Nottingham, England, called the Bell Inn, which is complete by chance where all the art students went. And then suddenly I was meeting architects, graphic designers, photographers, fine artists, and fashion designers. And they would talk about pop art and the Bauhaus. I thought the Bauhaus was a, a housing estate near Nottingham, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was just these new words I'd never heard of. Vasily Kandinsky, and it was amazing. It was just wonderful. And so I, I just ended up working for a, a girl that was opening a shop, clothes shop. And then after six years, I met Pauline, my girlfriend then and my wife now, who was teaching a couple of days a week in the art school, as it was called then in Nottingham. She, she was ex-Royal College of Art, studied couture, fashion. And then she came to live with me and she taught me everything I know on the kitchen table at home, which is wonderful because, because her training was couture. It was very much about making things beautifully, understanding how to construct clothes, the importance of cut, shape, how to cut a batten, sometimes fabrics cut on the cross, on the bias. So that was, that was the start really. I mean, uh, uh, if I hadn't have had that bike crash, I'm not quite sure I'm probably what I've been doing. I certainly wouldn't be talking to you now, that's for sure. My dad was an amateur photographer, so he, I might've ended up taking pictures, you know, maybe. But do you believe in destiny? It certainly has had a big part of my life, that's for sure. I mean, I think luck and then making luck or opportunity work, but you have to work at it. I'm not sure I believe in destiny, but uh, certainly a coming together event. But a lot of people, events come together, but they don't really take, you know, embrace them and make it work. And, and I, I seem to do that only because I was just so intrigued by this world of creativity and, and fine art and architecture and obviously that was just wonderful that I met Pauline and she's still absolutely my rock now all these years later and, and we're still she's still so got so so much clarity on what what I do for a living she's not part of the business at all but she she's just uh, keeps my feet on the ground and uh, and that's wonderful. Did she introduce you to the idea of Paris fashion and all those quite highfalutin notions at that time. Yeah, because she studied at the Royal College and she was around the same time as Peter Blake, David Hockney, Ozzy Clark, Celia Burtwell, a lot of those young artists and, and designers that went on to do quite well. It sounds a funny thing to say, but London was really exciting because it was, as we said earlier, it was just this brand new look over your shoulder, I can paint the house pink, I can do this, I can wear a short skirt, I can do very, you know, amazing things. So she brought to me all that energy from London, came to live with me in Nottingham, which she was well done her because she really missed London. And eventually, of course, we came to live in London. But she was the one that introduced me, she used to take me to the couture shows in Paris with a couple of the students from the college. And uh, we, we went to, you know, we used to get tickets from the Chambre Syndicale and we went to the couture shows in Paris when they were in the, just the house of the mm. designer with like 20 people in the audience. You know, the, we saw Saint Laurent's very first collection with the smoking 
when the girl opened the top and she just had a see-through top on and there was a <gasps> in the audience so it was just so outrageous that a she was bare-breasted b she was wearing a trouser suit in couture which was the famous smoking that then Helmut Newton photographed and I'm not sure whether you know but Pauline my Pauline had the very last couture smoking that uh, Eve ever made uh, he, he very kindly made remade the one from the year we met from 1967 and uh, that was wonderful amazing and so going through all those couture shows with chanel sitting on the stairs or patu bal patu and balman you know full circle skirts uh balasiaga doing the draping i mean it was just a real education you know it was wonderful i mean incredible from a guy who wanted to be a, a cyclist like a racing a champion unbelievable cyclist. unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, it, it just it just feels to me like there was you know there was always something in you that to be especially to be drawn to such an extraordinary world that was so alien to birmingham and and everything yeah, else yeah. i mean did you were you part of a gang at that point was did you feel that you were part of a new wave I definitely did. Once, once I met the, the young people from the art school, then the energy was so wonderful and lovely and special. And, and it was so, uh, you know, you felt like you could do anything. And then of course, in music, there was amazing things happening in music around that time. I mean, I get all my dates modeled up, but, you know, as you know, Pink Floyd, you know, Zeppelin, and then later on Talking Heads and then later on Bowie and you know on all people I've worked with and, and know and uh, and so there was a this wonderful energy wonderful energy and and you did feel like you could do anything but um you couldn't because you needed cash you know you needed to earn a living so in tomorrow 9th of April 2000 in 1970 50 years ago I opened my three meters by three meters shop which actually was a room down an alleyway and I called it a shop and uh, that was that was the start really and uh, and what what was uh, rather sad this week not rather sad very sad this week was Kenzo passed away uh, this week and in my little shop in the 1971-72 I sold a little bit of Paul Smith clothes made by Pauline some Levi's some Anello and David boots, which is the boots that the Beatles wore. And Kenzo, I was the first customer in Britain for Kenzo. I bought about six pieces <laughs> and, and Sonia Ricciel. <laughs> so I had Sonia Ricciel, either Margaret Howell or Georgina Howell, her sister, Sonia Ricciel, Kenzo, some Levi's, some Paul Smith. <laughs> and that was the first little, <laughs> the little shop. And, um, and, so and that would have been, would that have been Jungle Jap? Would that have been when Kenzo was doing yeah, Jungle yeah, yeah. Jap? Yeah, it was when, it was when his first shop, no, no, it was before Jungle It was Kenzo, his little shop was in Passage Choiselle, which is a narrow little passage in Paris. And you, to go into his tiny shop, you had to walk through a wardrobe door. It was so wonderful and beautiful. So that was, uh, that was amazing. You know, you're just about to release this book, Paul Smith and 50 Objects. I've got it here. Oh, you've got it? <laughs> now, this is an advert, everybody. <laughs> yeah. No, I know you were friends with David Bowie, and I know he was working on a book like that, I, and it never came out. I would love to have seen that. Tell me about these 50 objects. How is that one per year? How do you define your career in 50 Objects? 
it was edited by um, Tony Chambers, a guy called Tony Chambers, and he he said, you know, your world of fashion is not really, it shouldn't just be pictures from runway sh shows. It should be, you know, to show the way you think about things and the way you look at things. Uh, and um, and so instead of just it being a coffee table book with just pictures of clothing, it, it should be a bit more lateral and a bit more unusual. And so he said, please just choose 50 things. I mean, presumably that was to do with the 50 years, but he never said that. And so I very quickly chose 50 things. And I did what well, I say very quickly intentionally because I wanted it to be very spontaneous. So the first thing I chose was a camera, for instance. And, uh, and, and it's a camera that my dad bought me when I was 11. And it, it was really the, 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 the object that taught me to look and see because they had these little viewfinders that you look through mm -hmm. and it was very much about, you know, organizing your shot because it was film, as you know, uh, then it wasn't digital. So it, film was precious, you know, you had pocket money and you wanted to get it right. So that was very much about, so I've written a little essay about why I've chosen the camera and then through the book, there's all the various things I've chosen and a little essay about why I've chosen them. And I think some people will think it's a bit weird and odd and other people a bit obscure. And, and somebody said recently, uh, the late, well, the lady that from Fiden, the publisher, she said, you know, sometimes when you look at the object that Paul's chosen, you don't get the link. But when you really look at it, you just suddenly there's the understanding where that bit of lateral thinking comes from. So hopefully people will enjoy it, especially I think young creatives, hopefully will enjoy it. And of course, we, we're launching the foundation as well today. And that's really aimed very much at teenagers who just want a bit of advice and some information based on my <laughs> age and my experience that I've, I've learned over the years. So um, what's the what oddest, what's the oddest object in the book? One of the obje oddest objects in the book is, uh, is this, which is uh, something that uh, I used to uh, take to Japan when I was bored in a meeting and I'd get the suitcase out and it's got a train set in it. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say, I am now bored. <laughs> you're just a big kid. You're just a, in the book, it describes that. You're just a big kid, aren't you, really? Yes, 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 yes. I think it's very important, and one of the reasons for the longevity of the company is to have a childlike approach to life. Not childish, but childlike. And Bowie, for instance, when he used to come to my room, not this one, but the one across the road that had this similar feeling. He always was saying, what's that over there? Why have you got this? Why have you got that? Very curious and curious mind. And I think that having that childlike mind that's not cluttered with, with education or history, that, but you can be more spontaneous. And uh, I think that's, that's why I have this very lighthearted approach and why I've not have a, had a nervous breakdown <laughs> in this industry called fashion, you know? You mentioned young creatives, and, and one, thing, one, one thing you've done recently is you've opened up Paul Smith to young creatives to interpret it the way they see it. And it's very interesting to see what a blank slate it is for people, you know, when they approach yeah, so, it. Why do you think that is? I think, uh, I, I mean, for, uh, Pauline has managed to keep me feet, my feet on the ground, and so I'm a very open a very open person and very uh, often here we in this building 
not sadly this year, but you know, we have visitors from the art center in Pasadena. We have from the school in Rutland called the Oakham School in London, 15 year olds. Often the building is full of students and young people coming around and enjoying the building and seeing the process of silkscreen printing or designing textiles. And so I think that openness and nearly honestly, nearly everything in this room is a gift from people, you know, from including the bikes and the racing jerseys. So I think that clean slate is just the fact that there's just, just an openness that you feel that you can approach us and, and we'll help, you know, we'll help out. And that, that and hopefully that's what the foundation will be just at the beginning, just advice really. But um, when I first opened, started my shop, um, I had no idea that it was going to be more than just a little shop. I, we had no plan ever. Often people say, what was your turning point or what was your special moment? And uh, there was never been one. I mean, it's just just started like this and just grow gradually grew. And But you know, it's, it's interesting because that store on Floral Street, when I, when I think about what drew me to it originally, at the various times that I've lived in London and always ended up there, was the mix of stuff. It was the first shop that I've ever been to that felt curated in a way that you had the clothes you had books you had objects yep. you had all these different things before there was Corso Como in Milan before there was Colette in Paris there was yep. Paul Smith on Floral Street so uh, both those uh, shops that you cite um, Colette and uh, Carlos Sapsani have both cited my shop in Floral Street uh, so you're ex absolutely right as being the shop that influenced their their shops because it was that they said they exactly what you've just said and and many people said that it was so interesting that you know you go into a Paul Smith shop in Paris I mean Christian Lacroix said to me though I was in your shop in Tokyo and I found a book I'd been looking for Always. by Henry Cartier Henry Cartier Bresson and Matisse yeah. and he said I was, I was in your shop in Shibuya and I found that and then another a journalist said to me oh I found a bootleg a bootleg Zeppelin album in my shop in Paris and so and you know how that started though that that started from the little three meter by three meter shop it was so tiny that when people came in you were they were really on top of you so I just needed something like oh I just got this and it was just a way of breaking the ice and that's how it really started you know go on a backpacking holiday with Pauline and her kids to Greece and buy some fisherman sweaters and, and notebooks from a school shop and a pen knife from a fisherman shop and there were just little tools to make people feel relaxed and my I got that from my father actually my father was such a big influence from that point of view you know he's very such an easy person to talk to and I, and he was not confrontational at all and he was always that managed to break the ice you know when you go to an auntie's house on a Sunday and you're like <laughs> you know you're eight years old and then suddenly my dad had broken it everybody was laughing and looking at photographs he'd taken and suddenly it, everything was cool you know I mean that shop Laurel Street. Do you remember, you know, Bruce Weber did a, a book signing there. Yes. yes. Did, Martin Parr's done things did there. Andy Warhol, did Andy Warhol ever do anything in Floral Street? No, but in my little shop in Nottingham yeah. in 1972, I had a, an Andy Warhol exhibition in the basement, which was this smelly three meters by three meters ba basement called Pushpin Gallery. 
and I had a real soup can by Andy and some silk screens. And you know what? I couldn't afford, I'd never sold any of them and I couldn't afford to buy any of them. And now I was thinking the, the soup can, I remember it was 600 pounds. Oh, do you know, they were, when, they, when they were first exhibited in Los Angeles, they were a hundred dollars. I know. And they, and they only Amazing. sold, they only sold one in the show at uh, Ferris Gallery. Dennis Hopper bought one. And wow. then Irving Blum, who owned the gallery, went back to Dennis Hopper and said, you know what, I might as well keep the whole set. So sell me back the one I sold to you and I'll keep the whole set. Nobody else was interested. So you were on a you were on a you were on a little tip there. Um, yeah, that inspiration to put fashion in a context, in a creative continuum, it seems so simple in a way. But when you looked around you at that time, did you just think this industry is missing all these opportunities to communicate with people. I mean, I've, I've, well, I've, I've, I've thought it. over the years that there must have been times when you thought, I wish that it, the industry was more open and more embracing of all these other different... Well, ideas. it went through this interesting period, whereas at the beginning, it was mixed brand shops, you know, like Browns in South Morton Street in London. And it was where they had all the different brands. And then slowly uh, the, the various designers said, oh, I want my own shop on Bond Street or Madison Avenue or wherever. And so all these individual boutiques uh, started to, as you know, is now every major beautiful street in the world now has the same set of, you know, of, of very luxury brands on the street. And so, but I was a single brand, but I thought it's, is it why why do you just have to have your mm. clothes there mm. why can't you make it a little bit more interesting the, the guy that's coming in you know if you're coming in you're not just interested in that you could also be interested in mm. an album you know with I, I had the talking heads album that was done by robert rauschenberg you know we had the vinyl the rauschenberg talking heads vinyl you know why of course you'd be interested in that or of course you'd be interested in a book by Patrick de Marchelier or and so for me I, I just kept thinking well it's a bit weird that people only want that you know the, 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 there's more to it and um, of course later on we did get shops that, that sold other things as well a lot of the designer brands just want to say their own thing don't they with with their interiors and with their product but do you think that you were able to do that because you were always fundamentally an outsider? Definitely two reasons. One is because even now today, after 50 years, I'm still independent, which is, as you know, in the industry is quite rare and still self-financed and, and uh, amazingly still here. And then I, I think just the idea that you can just, being independent, you could just do your own thing a bit more uh, and, and self-express, I think not have to worry about brand image or other things. I don't think I answered the question fully. I can't, I lost my plot halfway through. So sorry if it wasn't quite right. No, no, I, because it, I think it does come back to this idea about what your biggest contribution was. I mean, I, I asked if you were an outs, if you felt you'd always been an outsider. Oh, that's right, you're an outsider. But, yeah, that's but right. what do you feel, do you feel that's been your biggest contribution to kind of emphasize the, the value of independence that you've been able to do, you know, that would be, I think that would the, be... Uh, being the outsider has been a good point for me personally, and especially with having the security of Pauline at home, which is a big help. You know, if you've got somebody at home that 
and you're not searching for things that having that lovely foundation at home is so nice and being the outsider is a good thing for emotionally but quite difficult sometimes in the world we live in because so much of it is what is expected of you or you are this brand which promotes in a certain way and has a certain designer who's maybe well known and you do things in a certain way so it's very much about how people perceive you i remember going when i first you know i've got quite a nice business in japan with over 200 shops in japan and when i first went there in 82 there was i hardly spoke english at all but i remember them saying can you i won't do the accent but can you please tell us what is your brand is your brand ivy league brand is your brand dc brand which i had no idea what that meant but apparently it means designer collective brands and I said, I, d I have no idea what it is. It's just, I just do. And that's how the overused phrased classic with a twist came about because I didn't know what to say. So I just say, well, it's classic, but it's got the twist and, you know, you, you look inside and you've got, you know, a bright colored lining or a colored buttonhole, which as you know, is completely uh, been uh, uh, imitated massively around the world and then eventually doing photographic print which i'm told i was the pioneer of you know photographs onto fabric and so never being able to be in a box is is joyful for me but sometimes difficult from a being taken seriously you know by a big department store or by a magazine or something but um, you know it's never held me back and i i personally love it and i think you know in terms of if there is if there has been a contribution by myself to do fashion it's it, in the early days it was definitely to do with nudging men into feeling comfortable about wearing clothes that were a bit more interesting mm. you know and, and a bit of color or you know it's just just something that people just when men british men especially were very nervous in the early 70s about dressing in an unusual way because they didn't want to really stand out but then eventually slowly i I managed to, you know, help them understand that, I think. It must have been incredibly gratifying to be so accepted in Japan, which is just about the most aesthetic, ooh, my lisp, yeah. aesthetic culture <laughs> in the world. And for them to oh, embrace you so, so totally. Yeah, it was just, it's been so humbling. It's just been, you know, I've been about a hundred times to Japan and it's just, just fantastic i should be there right now and obviously this year i can't this is the first time i've not been since 1982 and it's just wonderful and i mean and i think one of the reasons why i did okay there and we talked about destiny and luck uh, so many designers were invited to japan but in my opinion didn't take it seriously and and, and were always nervous about the jet lag the take you know demanding demanding lots of things and i just went thinking this is really in interesting place to to be invited to and i was just interested in the culture the food traveling around and and slowly almost you know just was there because i i used to go four times a year and i and i, I you know designed the, the shops did the they'd never done my my people that i licensed with were completely the wrong people and that was perfect because the if they'd have been the right 
if they'd been the so-called right people, there would have been a young group of people saying, oh, in Japan, we do it like this. In Japan, we do it like this. And I would have had a success for three years and then probably gone down, of which many designers did. Because my guys didn't know, they were very old fashioned based in, in Osaka. I just said, uh, eventually, in a couple of years, we should open a shop. We should try and get something called editorial in a magazine. They said, what is editorial in a magazine? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was very much about hand to mouth, but worked really, really well. Why do you think, but why do you, this has always been fascinating that the Japanese embrace you and Vivian Westwood. And it makes sense to me that you were kind of emblematic of maybe English eccentricity or something that, yeah. that it, it I, spoke to them and it spoke to the Japanese in some, in, in some common way, but also as something seductively alien. So that's a sort of interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously Vivian and I know each other very well, but but we couldn't be more opposite, you know, in terms of her fashion is 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 far more extreme than 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 mine, which is more classical. But in a way, both the, the way I uh, of the events I've done in Japan and the window dressing I've done in Japan, and they're, they're quite opposite to what people have seen before. So maybe it's. It's correct what you say, which is that there's a sort of underlying oddness or eccentricity that they love because I, I, the Japanese people are very disciplined and very focused on doing things a certain way. So anybody who comes along and does things a bit odd often either fails miserably or, or, or does okay. And the case of Vivian and myself, we've done well, you know. How are you going to communicate all of this through the foundation? How are you going to encapsulate all this experience in a sort of inspirational and instructional way for the people who want to think, uh, follow in your think, footsteps? Yeah, I think the thing with the foundation is it's literally the beginning. And so, as I said earlier, when I started my first little shop, I just thought it was just going to be a little shop. And Pauline and I never, ever thought we would sell our clothes to another shop or have a shop in London, it, we just never had that in our heads. It was just a way of earning a nice living. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because the shop was only open two days, I just did other things and learnt my trade that way. And so with the foundation, I think it's really back to that little square room almost. It's, so the first thing we've done is that people can go to the uh, foundation website and they can look in about you know, advice on, on various subjects and then hopefully we'll give them advice either in a written form or eventually we can answer them. Now, there's, that's not going to suddenly get them a job or do anything. All, all we're hoping is to start to demystify the industry so that they at least know which route to possibly consider. And it doesn't mean fashion, just fashion. It, it could be a graphic designer or a, somebody who's starting a restaurant or their own business. So, because the, 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 the tips on the website could be valuable to anybody, to, to anybody. And they're, and they're just little things that I've, I've learned over the years. And then I think slowly we'll realize that's really good, but we need to maybe have a bit more content and then slowly we'll grow it. But we're not in a hurry. It's, uh, it's today's the first day, so it's just helping the next generation, really. That's that's what I want. Do you feel a bit like Gandalf at this point? Like you're sort of dispensing <laughs> the wisdom of the ages? 
Well, I, not quite like him. <laughs> <We're kind> of, <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean, I've always done what I'm doing on the on the foundation uh, website. I mean, I've always done it anyway. And and as I said, we had so many people in this room from colleges and schools around the world. So it's an extension of what I've always done. And then I've been just putting a bit of money on one side from the company into this thing called a foundation. So it's got a little bit of funds, not a lot, but I didn't really want to do, it's a bit like the book. I didn't want to do a fashion book and I don't really want to do a foundation that just says, here's a large amount of money, you win a prize or here's a, a, a month in Paris and go and work for somebody. I just wanted it to be a bit more slow and gentle and a bit more thoughtful provoking and, and I hope that's what it will be we'll see anyway it's uh, started today and I think we had a few visitors so that's good <laughs> and a few more after this I hope so this this is you know the wisdom of aging is something that fascinates you know that is part of the best thing about one of the best things about getting older is that yep. you acquire all this information from lived yep. experience you know and that's that's awfully seductive and convincing or whatever when you're passing it on but how, how do you feel about aging because as we establish you're very playful yeah and you know it would be instructive for me to know how you what's, in, what's you, interesting uh, for me is um in this year which is the 50th anniversary year i'd always even though we've had the the sadness of the virus i'd always planned to uh, reassess my company this year and be brave enough even though we're successful be brave enough to reassess the company and look at look at the some of my lovely young staff that I think I could elevate. And so I've been and, and a lot of bosses are not very good at that, you know, because they think this I'm the boss and I've always done it this way. And so around this table where I'm sitting now, we in the last week or two when we've been able to come back into work is that it's fascinating sitting with my 24 to 32 year olds and my experience sometimes is helpful and sometimes their youthfulness and some experience is better than mine. So working out how longevity and experience can be balanced out with a new way of thinking, new way of communicating with people. And one or two things I commented on that they'd done and then they justified it by saying whatever they said. And I think, you're right. You're absolutely right. So what's fantastic and so exciting is I can give all my experience, but they can give the youthful uh, slant on it. So in theory, the next few years should be so exciting because it's got the, the solid grounding of an independent company with a, this lovely team of energy, which amazing. I still have two <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I don't know quite how, but yeah. What, what's been the impact of the of the pandemic on on your business on your creativity as it you know restriction limitations inspire people yeah. and what we've what I've seen over the last few weeks the sort of virtual fashion weeks is actually I think the best of it has been really inspiring yes I think the you know when you when you're in these difficult situations the the exciting thing is that you have to start, uh, surviving or th in some cases and thinking about things in a very different way and as a, as a company that's always had more of this 
lateral approach anyway it's been it's been very exciting luckily just as lockdown happened we are very strict with our we call out what we call our critical path of when we're designing the collection and we're already started work on spring 22 so when lockdown happened we we had the bones of the collection so they all went to their houses with the knitwear girl with her with the little bits of knitwear and the print guys with some ideas and some books I'd loan them to for ideas. And so I think the practical thing it's done for a lot of companies is made them have smaller collections. And then that whole big debate that was started with Mr. Armani, I think you'd know better than me, actually, Tim, is, uh, you know, about realigning the seasons and uh, maybe having less, less uh, collections, delivering clothes at a time that's a bit more sensible rather than overcoats in June, having more seasonless fabrics because of the global warming. So there's been a lot of things that have been started because people had more time on the hands to think about them and more time to actually sit down and write a letter and, and express their feelings. And I, th I think that's been really, really great. And I just think that the whole question of fashion shows, who knows whether you know, the fashion show as we knew it, the fashion show at all, digital, small presentations. And, you know, my first fashion show uh, was in 1978 and I had very little money and it was in the, uh, a friend's apartment in Rue de Vaugirard in Paris on the first floor of an apartment. And, uh, and it was just charming. I mean, and it was done with, I think I had about 30 people in the audience. Most of the, some of the models uh, were models, but some were friends, all the helpers were mates. And uh, I just have that in my head. And I just think how special was that? You know, the fact that when the little show was over, you know, we all just sat and chatted and had a drink and it was just lovely it's like I you know I work in my store on a Saturday in Mayfair and I I, I just, it's just so lovely you, you know not now because there's sadly very few people visiting from London but you know not on a normal Saturday you get people from Germany Greece America uh China and have a good chat and it's it's what way what how I started you know with the little shop and communication through down-to-earthness but, you know, confronting this, this situation, which is so, nobody could have anticipated this. Nothing has happened like this in living memory, that the entire world is confronting a, you know, a common enemy. We always thought that the only thing that would unite humanity would be an alien invasion. It would be the yeah. only thing that would actually yeah. stress the entire planet out. But now this is thing that unites everybody everywhere. Do you ever feel fear? Did you ever feel fear? Have you ever felt fear? in the face of anything that life has thrown your way when you seem so playful and optimistic and, and yet you have been through so many ups and downs over the course of the 50 years, just the, all the stuff that has happened in the world that fashion reflects. Have, have you ever felt frightened or intimidated at any point? Never, because I've got a beautiful lady at home and uh... I've got the support of stability, stability at home. And we've never gone like a rocket as a, as a company. We've always been within our means. We've never overdone it. I'm very old fashioned as a company. You know, my grandma used to have something like a jam jar on the, on the fire fireplace and my granddad's money went in there every week and 
she knew how to <laughs> how to spend that money <laughs> gently and i've sort of been like that all my life the building i'm in uh, you know i own the building i'm in i own the buildings in mayfair i own my warehouse in nottingham we've always just put the money back in i you know i've witnessed the three-day coal miners strike when we only had electricity three yeah, days yeah and i had to use electricity through a generator obviously the financial crisis this is by far worse than anything and and we we're as vulnerable as anybody and at the moment you know we're we're okay and we're we're strong and we've got wonderful lovely loyalty from our clients around the world in 70 countries and and that's amazing but we're vulnerable like everybody and nobody's escaping this as you say the most beautiful hotels in the world are really suffer, suffering the biggest brands in the world are really suffering so anybody who says they're not is is unfortunately not really being totally honest because they might still have lots of um you know liquidity but but they're still suffering like everybody else but, but you, know, I, I like you know having a good missus at home really helps yeah i was just going to say that the power of love that actually if you had to you could chuck it in and just i love go. it too much i love it too much I wouldn't be able to come in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and root around in your old, your old bike jerseys. Yeah, I know. You, know. you called your book, You Can Find Inspiration in Everything. Yeah. Which is a very inspired, that, that could be the strap line of the foundation, actually. Is it? Is it the strap line of the foundation? Uh, no, I, no, but we're writing it down as we speak. Tim says. What's your don't say Tim says, please. He knows nothing. What is what is your latest inspiration, would you say? I mean, like many designers, you know, you do take inspiration from the obvious, you know, like a, a wonderful art exhibition, the colours in a painting. and But sometimes it can be to do with going back to Pauline and her being taught couture fashion. And this particular season, what's been inspiring for me is the construction of, you know, we're famous for our tailoring, uh, both for men and women. And we sell, you know, we sell very well tailored suits, but obviously because so many people have been working from home, they've been wearing very casual clothes. But we're amazingly, we're still doing quite well with our clothing and or tailoring as we call it in England. It, because I've learned so much about construction in those early days. So we've got this new jacket, you know, which is completely soft. It's got a zip in it for traveling, no pad, but it's breathable, it's, it's shower proof. So instead of the, the inspiration coming from a Matisse painting, which he has done in the past, like everybody, Basque or, you know, I can never say Basque, but anyway, you know, I mean, I say uh, Basquiat, but I'm probably wrong. Basquiat. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Basquiat. Um, so this <laughs> time to do with how, how we make things has been really wonderful. Going back to that. I'll just show you something, which is, which is nice, which is, uh, this is, this is a, a toile made by Pauline a few weeks ago. Uh, months ago, sorry, a few months ago, from a blank sheet of paper. So she could still make a toile. And as you know, that's all how the couturiers always worked. So I've got a lady at home that can do this. And so how inspiring is that for constructing a beautiful piece of tailoring? Beautiful. Wonderful. Who does the cooking? 
Uh, she's the boss all round. I do the washing up and driving. <laughs> Paul, we have time for one more question. And you know, I'm a rabid David Bowie fan. So tell me an amazing David Bowie story. Walking, having supper with him and Iman uh, one night, Pauline and I, Hanif Qureshi, you know, Hanif uh, Qureshi, mm -hmm. the writer who did My Beautiful, My Beautiful Laundrette. Hanif Qureshi and his wife, David Bowie and his wife, Pauline and I, having supper, leaving the restaurant, walking down the stairs, just with David and Iman, and David turning to Pauline and saying, singing, the party's over and we're gonna call it a day. And we were like, I'm getting goosebumps now, even telling you that story. I mean, and Pauline was like, David Bowie is singing <laughs> to us. <laughs> and the most beautiful thing. He was a nice man, beautiful man. I'm so happy that after all these years, you can still be—you can still be a major sort of fanboy, you know. Oh, you, you, oh, haven't lost that. You, you haven't lost that innocence and enthusiasm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. It was wonderful talking to you. Uh, so lovely, and thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. And happy fiftieth birthday. Yes. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.